You're listening to Earth Matters, produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the Kulin Nation and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. We're bringing you environmental and social justice stories. I'm Corey Green. This week on Earth Matters, we're talking to Dr Peter Spooner from Charles Sturt University about proposed changes to New South Wales' biodiversity laws. Uh, welcome to the show. Can you please introduce yourself? Hi, my name's Peter Spooner and I'm a vegetation ecologist at Charles Sturt University. Well, what I do is look at how uh, plants interact with the environment and I've got a particular interest in roadside vegetation. So along many of our roads there's vegetation that's uh, in many cases of high conservation value. It's worth protecting. So the New South Wales government has recently amended its biodiversity laws. Can you start off by telling us how the biodiversity laws used to work? So over the last two years, the uh, government's been reviewing the current laws for the Native Vegetation Act. There's actually a couple of laws in place and the Threatened Species Act. And at the moment, the present laws do a reasonable job in protecting environmental assets on farms. And most environmentalists think they're doing a pretty good job. But in, in the last year or so, there's been certain interest groups within the state lobbying to basically water down these laws and and make it easier for developers to clear vegetation. The concern is that they've been watered down to such an extent these proposed laws, which will be going through the parliamentary process this year, may be open to abuse and broad-scale tree clearing could erupt in New South Wales as a result. And what sort of interest groups are these? Um, So there's particular um, farmers that wish to continue cropping and remove paddock trees, but we're also talking about urban development. So these laws will make it even easier for local councils and others to clear vegetation around the growing cities of Sydney, Newcastle and Wollongong um, and other regional towns that are developing, such as Albury, where I live. Hmm. And so what are the proposed changes? So the changes are trying to simplify existing environmental laws. So at the moment, a farmer uh, under the Act needs to develop a native vegetation plan for their property, a property vegetation plan, sorry. And under that, there's agreements made between the relevant department and the farmer of where they farm and where maybe, say, native vegetation um, is retained. And that's usually negotiated as, and to, to obtain win-win outcomes. But these present laws take away a lot of that where the farmer now can basically make their own decisions under what's called a self-assessment process where they um, look at sort of like a traffic light system where if it's zoned in the green, they can go for their lives and clear trees. In the orange, they could still clear trees, but um, there's a lot of... um, exemptions there they can pretty well do what they like um, and it's only if it's zoned a red where they can't do clearing and the basis of this is a map a simple map on a website and it's just got three color zones and the map is poorly presented it misses a lot of detail so as a result putting the owners onto farmers and i'm not trying to degrade the work of what farmers do many of them are great stewards of the land but putting this sort of approach out there means it, it could be open to abuse. Some could just simply go, oh, it, look, I could go for it. The map shows that I can and I'll start clearing the rest of my landscape. 
So not a good environmental outcome. So the problem is um, these microhabitats, is that right? Uh, I'm not sure what you mean, sorry. Um, areas on the map uh, that, are, that are quite small, that, um, sorry, yes. areas that aren't on the map because they're quite small, but they're um, essential to the overall habitat? Yeah, um, in, in much of the wheat sheep belt of New South Wales and even into Victoria, we've got a lot of scattered trees and those paddock trees provide important refuge for many endangered species. So in New South Wales, up to 60% of species are either vulnerable or endangered with extinction. This is pretty serious stuff. But they hang on in these isolated trees or as remnants or the roadside vegetation I mentioned before. But the map, the map that the government's providing, overlooks a lot of the details. It's a very broad-scale map, and so paddock trees don't appear at all, for example, which essentially means they've been given up for the ghost and could be gone in future years if this goes through. Would the legislation otherwise be good if the map was um, fixed? Certainly if more work was done on the map um, to get it right down to the, the finer detail, that would certainly improve things. But the key issue still is the emphasis on self-assessment. So any Joe Blow can decide themselves what is of environmental value. And we're talking about wildlife as well. So this legislation, for example, permits certain uh, culling activities of wildlife if, if a farmer deems fit. So it puts a lot of you know, emphasis on the farmer and they don't have environmental science degrees in terms of identifying threatened plants and animals. As a result, we could see a certain individual going out there and shooting quite a lot of native wildlife, and it may be permissible under these new laws. This isn't good. Can you talk about the um, the system of offsets that's proposed? Yeah, in New South Wales and Victoria, where you are and, and other places, to, to sort of assist development, what happens is this. Say, for example, a road developer wants to put a big highway through a new area of the land and it impacts on the environment and it can't be avoided, an offset is calculated. So, say, three hectares of land is impacted by the road. It's called a like-for-like like where they then calculate perhaps another area which they'll restore or retain for conservation purposes. And often there's a ratio there, so if three hectares of impacted, they might do a 10 for one and 30 hectares is retained elsewhere. The reason they have that ratio is because often the vegetation is very high quality, it's big old trees, and elsewhere we just can't find that. So there's kind of this idea that offsetting is a way to allow development and it's the last resort. You know, we first try to protect what's there, we first try to avoid impacts on that vegetation, and at the worst-case scenario, we do an offset. So we, we, we protect some land elsewhere to allow the development to occur. The concern is, with this legislation and others, more and more so developers are opting for part three of that process straight away really quickly, where it's like, we want to do this, so we'll just do an offset, and we can develop our, our road or whatever it is, or it could be a, a, a big cropping enterprise. But you can't offset an old tree. Trees take centuries to develop. They take centuries to develop hollows for endangered wildlife. Planting some seedlings elsewhere is not like for like. So this is the concerns I and many other environmentalists have with this approach. And 
What sort of laws would you actually like to see in place? I'd like to see us go back to our existing laws, which are still in place, and further consultation with uh, relevant experts and community groups to look at what needs to be fixed within the existing laws because I think that's the starting place rather than proposing these new laws which are basically pro-development. Do you have anything else that you'd like to say about the topic? Um, just to conclude, um, look, these proposed laws are, are a serious uh, concern to many farmers and many environmentalists in New South Wales. Decades of great work have been done by Landcare Federal government and state government have inputted millions of dollars into conserving the environment. But these proposed laws threaten to unwind all that good work. I want to see the bush retained in, on our farms and elsewhere, and I'd certainly appeal to the people involved in developing this legislation to have a good hard think about where this act is heading. Mm. All right. Thank you for appearing on the show. That's okay. Thank you. Okay, bye. bye. And that was Dr Peter Spooner, a vegetation ecologist from Charles Sturt University. I'm Corey Green, and you're listening to Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories. It's 3CR's 40th anniversary, so this week we're going to go back into the archives and hear an interview from the year 2000 with Dr Vindana Shiva. She was speaking at the Global Capitalism Local Responses Seminar, which was hosted by RMIT, on the eve of the World Economic Forum's Asia-Pacific Summit. Australia's just so far away for us. It's the, the place that one has to think a lot about coming to and a lot of persuasion. And I've had friends like Lynette and others who really pushed. I'd said no to the Economic Forum. I'd said no to everyone. And, uh, and then I got this invitation with love and a lot of pressure. I'm here. <laughs> I've been on a very long trip, about 10 days. Every step, it's been the new phenomena around globalization, which is dialogue. First, they said globalization has to happen, it's inevitable, it's natural, it's happening on its own, no one's responsible for it. And then people got together in Seattle and stopped it. So it was no more obvious that it was just happening and that things could be done about it. So the post-Seattle agenda has been a lot of dialogue, a lot of debates. And at the summit that's, that was taking place in the United Nations, parallel to it, as usual, were lots of events, including something Gorbachev started called the State of the World Forum. And you might remember, Gorbachev was very keen free marketeer. And he was speaking with me at the opening plenary of this meeting now and said, it's turned out to be very different from what I had imagined. I thought it would bring democracy. It brought mafia rule. And then the person who's really won out in this game of globalization, George Soros, he was there too. This is what he said. He said, free markets were supposed to have created open societies, free societies. But we cannot speak of the triumph of democracy. 
Capitalism and political freedom do not go hand in hand. We cannot leave freedom and democracy to market forces. We need to create our own institutions and different institutions from those that serve capitalism to take care of them. And anyone, this is not my words, it's not your words, it's George Soros. And he said anyone who thinks they can leave freedom to free markets is a market fundamentalist. That's not how societies work. So we have gone a long way since Seattle. And on the one hand, those who think a little, reflect a little, like Soros and Gorbachev, are saying it turned out different from what it was projected to be. And then there are others who insist they can't be wrong, and all the people protesting have to be now redefined as terrorists. It's happened in your country, it's happened in UK, it's happened in my country. And I'm sure anywhere where there's effective popular mobilization, there's a rewriting of terrorist laws to basically say people engaging in their fundamental rights to defend their fundamental rights are a new brand of terrorists. And I think the big, and I want to thank you all for, for mobilizing to the extent you have because Seattle was about telling the MIG machinery, it's not a natural phenomenon, we can stop this bulldozer. And I'm sure Melbourne will be remembered for the message that we are not terrorists. Defending our fundamental rights guaranteed by our constitutions is not terrorism but the very foundation of democracy and we are not going to give it up. In fact, it's the global economy as it's been designed over the last decade and a half with the combination of privatization of our public assets in the name of trade liberalization and economic reform. They may really make it look like, you know, the market is some kind of new church where you've got to go down, kneel out there and say, sorry, me, I I made a mistake. I went to a Catholic school, by the way. Uh, the word reform comes out of a notion of sin. And it's like any economy where people are looked after is a sinful economy. Any economy where people's rights are violated is the reformed economy. It's a very strange view, even of a religion. It's definitely a very strange view of a market. The global structures that have been put in place under the name of globalization include the structural adjustment programs that the third world is facing, launched by the World Bank and IMF, with the combination of liberalized imports, liberalized exports, change your logic from meeting your needs to selling luxury commodities for cheap and buying your basic needs for expensive on foreign exchange. It's about removing everything that people have gained through struggles over millennia, over centuries, rights to have security of work. In India, two fundamental rights around which I work a lot 
the right of small peasants to survive. How has this right been defended in spite of years of colonization, in spite of disenfranchisement? First, by removing the system of zamidari or landlordism that was put in place by the British. Where the British valued land for the revenue it could generate, created a new class of landowners. In India, you couldn't own land as private property. What the saying we have is sabhi bhumi gopal ki, you know. The land belongs to the creator, you can use it. And it's absolutely the same for the Aboriginal people here. You can't own land, you can't buy and sell it. The British created a group of owners of land who would then be the rent collectors, who would then finance the empire, and meantime, the people were losing their land. And this had simultaneous impact on hunger, because if all your surplus is being extracted to pay taxes, then the very producers of food go hungry, which is why two million people died in the Bengal famine of 1942. Not because there wasn't enough rice in India, we were exporting rice for the war. But because of the way the free trade rights of commerce were higher than the rights of people to eat. And the entire force of the British Empire was being used to extract the last amount of paddy from the peasants. And we had at that point a wonderful women's movement called Tebhaga. And the women would basically blockade their paddy and say, we won't let you take it. You can't forcefully take away our produce. We would rather give our lives than give our rice. And it's that direct action of that kind that eventually brought the changes of the 40s. And after 47, when we got independence, we ensured that no one could own more than a certain amount of land. Laws that were called land sealing. 17 acres under irrigated conditions, not very much, which makes every farmer in India a small farmer, unless they're lying and putting cats and dogs as, as owners of pieces of their farm, which also happens in places. The second thing that was done was a universal right to food. And one of our economists got a Nobel Prize two years ago, three years ago, Amartya Sen, who wrote a book on food and famine in which he talked about why after independence in India there had been no famines and why there had been such huge famines in China. And he traced it down to food entitlements and food rights that our systems had democratically been shaped to ensure that everyone got food. What does the new economy do? First, it gets rid of the ceilings on land because it's an interference in the tradability of land, which means an interference to transfer land from farming to speculation, from food crops to cash crops. And the World Bank put all its might to dismantle the entire structure of food rights that ensured that people had access to food and didn't starve. They might not eat enough, there was still poverty, but at least the state had an obligation that people could not go hungry. That obligation has been removed by the new market fundamentalism of trade liberalization. And then you get the World Trade Organization declaring out of the blue that food is a tradable commodity. Who wrote the treaty on agreement on agriculture? Cargill. 
Cargill, the biggest trading corporations that today control 70% of the world trade in food, basically was deputed to head the delegation for the agreement on agriculture, wrote it for its own use, to create markets for itself, to take over markets. And the result of which has been this amazing phenomena of the creation of our most basic fundamental need being resting now on a totally false economy. Totally false economy. False in the sense that the cost of production has nothing to do with the price we pay for food. False in the sense that what farmers are getting, and I'm, it's, I'm sure it's the case in Australia, it is the case in India, it is the case in Europe, it's the case in Canada, US, Brazil, Argentina, where what, the, what farmers are receiving at the end of the year of work is a fraction of what they're spending on the production. A negative economy around what should be the first and primary economy of food production, how has it happened? It's happened by a series of magical things. First, by creating these rules of trade, which allow these corporations to get so big that they can then undercut in 10 places for 10 years and still make money. Because they've taken over the most vital areas of our life. They keep talking about the new economy, they keep talking about information technologies, as if the new economy is computers. The new economy is the commodification of the very basis of our life. That's what the new economy is. It's the potential of a Monsanto to claim to give away rice that doesn't belong to it to growers in Asia. Rice has evolved in Asia. It belongs to the people of Asia. It can only be Monsanto's through theft. And in any case, this claim to a patent on the rice genome, which hasn't even been completed yet, is, is hardly the same as having paddy and having rice. Um, in my little plastic, I feel like a, a New Yorker on the streets just now with my plastic belongings. Um, but somewhere here, and we don't have an overhead projection, but somewhere here I have, can you see this? You can't, but, <laughs> sorry. But I'll tell you what it is. It's a Financial Times clipping on the day Monsanto announced it was giving away rice for free to our Asian peasants. Now, you know, we grow rice. I come from one of the best valleys that grows rice. We grow the basmati, which interestingly in the new economy, uh, basmati, this wonderful aromatic rice you buy in Indian stores, long-grained, Smells beautiful. A company in Texas <coughs> claimed last two years ago that it had invented basmati. And not just invented it in seven days like God and Bible. They invented it instantly. Instant invention of a novel rice line. We have a legal challenge to this patent. And it's fascinating because the first ten... And basically what they did is take basmati, which had been robbed from India through Erie, gone to Fort Collins, which is the big gene bank in the U.S., taken for free by Ricetech. And Ricetech then <coughs> um, used it. The aroma was in the rice. 
It was in the grain. They then go, go on and claim that any method of growing any rice, method of growing rice, method of selecting seed from rice, method of harvesting seed, method of cooking rice, is all their exclusive property. Now, of course, you know, we've had that kind of blunder before. The Europeans set sail, they set sail here, they set sail to North America, they thought they were coming to India, that's why everyone became Indians. Uh, except the aboriginals here. Uh, here they came with a different mindset. It was all absolutely the same. That you go to a place, you say nothing happened before, no one existed before, it's empty land, sterilious. We are the discoverers, therefore we are the owners. And that old blunder of colonization is being repeated. It's, you know, I would, one would even think that after 500 years, it doesn't just become habitual, it might even become genetic. <laughs> but coming back to Monsanto's story of the rice genome, you know, this, I love this picture. I wish I could show it to you with an overhead projection. Um, but it's basically got two women, peasant women, growing rice. And then it's got two men in ties and pants, planting research papers. The paper actually says research. <laughs> they don't seem to realize that paper put into rice puddles becomes pulp, doesn't become rice. <laughs> and it's like they can't get out of the, that habit. You know, here's yesterday's. The o only value of traveling long distances, you get free financial times with all this amazing <laughs> imagery. <laughs> we don't get it in our newspapers. This is yesterday, divided over a diet for the world's poor. It's got Africans on this side, all with distended bellies and hungry and starving. And then it's got these banners saying no GM, and it's got food on this side. Which means every one of us who's saying no to risks of genetic engineering is creating starvation. And that guilt trip is what they're manufacturing in the latest round of selling genetic engineering after consumers have rejected it. Now, of course, it's not the case that there's no food on that side. Women in Africa are some of the most productive farmers. The productivity of African farms when left to women's indigenous knowledge, is much higher than the Green Revolution could ever achieve, as long as you assess productivity in terms of 100 crops on the field, rather than one monoculture of maize, or a monoculture of rice. And if people are starving in Africa, it's because of the way subsidized food has been dumped on Africa, destroying people's livelihoods, and therefore making them starve. Hunger, as Amartya Sen said, has nothing to do with the quantity of food floating around. It has everything to do with the ability of people to have entitlements and rights to food, either by growing it themselves or by being able to grow it and sell parts of it on the market or to have enough jobs and livelihoods to be able to buy it. Now, this kind of idea of empty eco eco ecosystems, empty earths, empty life, empty agriculture, as long as it's not run by corporations, is 
the entire assumption of globalization, that there's nothing till the corporations enter. They create food, they create water. I was debating McKinsey some time ago, McKinsey Corporation, which is going around giving advice to the whole world these days. And it's advice, it's, it's fascinating advice, because they put out a report in India on food processing, which in, quite clearly is women's activity. And uh, the report's title was Faida. Faida in Hindi means uh, profit. Yeah. Just like that. Food processing is about profit. They were just so happy they found the Hindi word for it. It sounds terribly crude because, in, you know, in, in our vernacular languages, we haven't yet internalized the logic of commerce fully. And the report then goes on to say, well, the big businesses came into India thinking they'd make money on ketchup and soft drinks. But, uh, you know, majority of the Indian people are too poor to buy ketchup and soft drinks, but they all eat. Therefore, let's grab the staples. That's where the millions are. Four billion dollars can be made if Cargill starts to do contract farming with Indian farmers, starts to make them slaves by selling seed and chemicals, buys the product produce for cheap, and they say it with no shame that the way we'll make the margins is by buying cheap from farmers. Farmers are already receiving only 1% of what the consumer pays. And if they have to receive less than that, it means being pushed into the negative economy that is starting to be experienced where Monsanto, for example, has entered with seeds. Or Novartis. One of the big areas of our work in India right now is working in areas of epidemics of suicide, like Warangal in Andhra Pradesh, in the southern state of Andhra Pradesh, or in Punjab, in the, in the district of Bhatinda, where the debts of farmers because of the free market removing all government supply, as well as all government intervention, has meant that farmers are now vulnerable to video vans going into villages, showing firms about God bringing down these wonderful new multinational seeds to make you an instant millionaire. Now, when Seeds are sold through mythology like that. You know, India is a very, very devout country. People really believe it's true. They try it out, the seed fails. The seed was 450 kilograms. It required pesticides. It required drilling a well. Before you know it, you have debts of three, four lakhs. You can't pay them back. Farmers are committing suicide. The latest is the first year you don't commit suicide. The first year you try and sell your kidney. That are, those are indicators of a negative economy. What's happening in East, the ex-Soviet Union? Every woman had work. Today, most of them are being trapped by mafias into sex trade. They're offered jobs as teachers and workers, smuggled into Western Europe. Half of them survive, most of them are killed. But the only job available is trafficking in their bodies. Now, an economy in which farmers commit suicide or sell kidneys, women and children become the objects of traffic for the sexual industry, it's not a prosperous eco economy. 
It's a perverted economy. It's an economy that needs to be removed with a most intense mobilization. Because if we are committed to the dignity of human life and we are committed to the notion that everyone has a right to security of every dimension, then we cannot have the millions being pushed into that kind of violence in their everyday life. I've, I literally carried the whole aeroplane of newspapers with me. You know, some, I think about three years ago, they, all, all the newspapers were about the euro being born. Yeah? The euro was just born a while ago. And the euro was literally being born out of an egg, and it was a man, and all the other human beings were tiny around it, watching in admiration. Well, you know, the euro just collapsed. <laughs> and that's really part of the problem about this whole economic system that's been built, that the fictions are being given the full support of all institutions of the world. The fiction of the corporation is the only one that has rights in today's world. Citizens don't have rights. If corporations have to be subjected to protection of the citizens' rights, it's non-tariff trade barriers. It's violation of uh, the free trade logic of GATT, and it involves millions and billions of dollars of retaliation. As Europe is facing now because they refuse to import beef hormones, uh, beef with hormones, or they refuse to import banana from Chiquita. India was forced to remove all its restrictions last December. And the way it happens is amazing because you might, do you remember there was a hijack of an Indian Airlines plane out of Nepal? And then this plane landed in Amritsar. Now, that's India. For some mysterious reason, it wasn't allowed to land. It was forced to take off. Then it landed in Lahore. For some mysterious reason, it wasn't allowed to stay there either. Then it ended, landed, ended up being in Afghanistan. And while all this was happening, and Indians were glued from the middle of December right up to New Year's Eve to their TV about the fate of these 300 passengers, I happened to be traveling, and once again, you know, thank goodness for Financial Times. I was traveling, and I found in this Financial Times an article saying, India agrees to remove quantitative restrictions, but has asked the United States to promise to not make this public, because otherwise, they're, uh, till after the parliament session is over. So I came back, started to do my homework. Sure enough, a secret deal had been signed during that hijack. And the, they knew that there'd be so much reaction against the removal of restrictions on imports. They said, hide it, because our parliament is going to be in an uproar. Well, the parliament, of course, closed for the session. And the imports started to flood. And I'll just run through some figures for you to give you a feeling of what we are talking about. Right at this point, India is the source of some of the best teas of the world. Right at this point, every day, 400,000 kilograms of tea are being burnt in Assam. They're calling it the Boston Tea Party. Because of the so-called free trade, some fake tea from some area is coming in cheap and is 
leading to the collapse of tea prices from 12 rupees a kilogram last year for the seller and producer down to 4 rupees. And when it's 4 rupees, you can't cover cost of production. So they're just burning. It's not even worth transporting. It's transporting it to Calcutta, where the trading houses are. They're just burning every day. 25,000 people are out on those roads burning their tea. Edible oil. We had the best edible oils. Best edible oils in the world. The best technologies in the world. Technologies that preserve the taste and food value in the oil, not technologies that allow you to contaminate oil and not let you know at the end of it that it's contaminated. Seven million livelihoods have been wiped out because of imports of genetically engineered soya oil from the US, heavily subsidized. And in spite of it being cheap, Indians weren't buying it. You know, We had a very strong women's action when the flood of, uh, of soya started. Because simultaneously they had to ban the Indian oils because even though Indian oils continue to be expensive, people would prefer to have their mustard oil if they were used to mustard, coconut oil in Kerala if they're used to coconut. You know, oil is something that you really, it kind of creates the base flavor. It's, you know, I became politically anti-McDonald later. I was anti-McDonald right from the beginning because of taste. <laughs> because some of the worst world that could, food that could ever be created in the world. <laughs> and yet the entire machinery, <laughs> the entire machinery of globalization is trying to spread Walmarts and McDonald's. Now, McDonald's, as um, this American writer wrote, who supports globalization tremendously in his book, The Lexus and the Olive Tree, Tom Friedman. He's, he said, you can't spread McDonald's without the McDonnell Douglas, which is the fighter aircraft of the Air Force, supplied by, McDonnell, by Boeing. For the US foreign policy, it's extremely clear that globalization is not about, not about free markets, it's about the use of the entire might of military and police to defend the interests of corporations. So you get a new phenomena around the world of our intellectual property rights police. Intellectual property rights defined in a new way to create a new property in the so-called new economy based on knowledge. I call it an economy based on ignorance. Because we are being denied the right to know what's in our food, that's ignorance. We are being denied the right to know what rules are governing us. We are being denied the right to be able to have the knowledge to look after our own needs. And that's supposed to be a knowledge economy? It's deliberate manufacture of ignorance among the public. So that you're dependent and crippled and accept dictatorship of the corporations with no questioning. Well, in this economy, the so-called knowledge economy, the absolutely centerpiece is intellectual property. And intellectual property is now defined not as just as real inventions, you know, things like machine you can recognize so-and-so made it. And I don't really mind if an inventor making a new machine says, oh, please, for 10 years, let me make the exclusive one who makes it. Society doesn't get crippled by that. 
But under that pretext of rewarding innovation, what's being patented? Our seeds, our cells, our methods of healing. I mentioned the case of the Basmati. There's another case of the Neem. We luckily won, won it. We won it um, on 10th of May, the anniversary of our first uh, movement of independence. And it's, it's very interesting, because when we won it, I was in the room. I was in the European Patent Office, in the court of the European Patent Office, where this hearing was going on. This patent is interestingly for the use of this beautiful tree called neem in agriculture, for pest control and fungal control. We've used it for centuries. And the reason I launched the neem campaign in 94 was reading a biotechnology journal, I found an article saying the first, world's first ever ne uh, neem pesticide plant being set up by W.R. Grace. So I thought of Bhopal in 1984 when we launched the campaign, no more Bhopal's plant a neem because neem was a source of safe, pe safe pesticides. I thought of my mother who used to massage me with neem oil every time we got skin infections. I thought of every trip to villages when you take a little twig of neem and brush your teeth. It's best dental care. It's the Indian toothbrush. And suddenly, you had not just Grace, but Grace with USDA claiming this, and 74 other patents. That's the other interesting thing about this invention by big powers. That 30 of them, 100 of them claim to have invented the same thing at the same time. Because they're all pirating it. You know, you, 100 people can steal the same thing, but 100 people can't create the same thing. So you have about 85 patents on name, and we picked the one with the USDA and Grace. We challenged it, three women. Linda Ma uh, Bullard, who's now the president of the organic movement, the global organic movement, the EFOAM, International Federation of Organic Agriculture. Uh, Mag Dalloway, who used to be the president of the Greens in European Parliament, is uh, right now the health and environment minister of Belgium. And we kept going. Six years we kept going, helping each other, us with the information, we didn't have the money. They found the lawyers. I mobilized funding by going to every rich person I knew to help. And sitting in that room, the US lawyers say, oh, this case must be dismissed because Dr. Shiva's an Indian. She has no status in this court. And I just passed a note to the lawyer and said, they're Americans. And <laughs> they don't, if that logic works, they're not, they don't have status in the European court either. And then they said, okay, but then she didn't go and pay a separate fees. You know, they paid one fees together. So we asked them, did you pay separate fees for the US government and the company? No, they hadn't. They'd also paid one fees to claim the patent. And once it got past those technical issues and the real debate started, you could see their faces, you know, getting more and more and more glum and swollen, and then the cheeks started to hang. <laughs> because they weren't used to an honest debate and an honest argument. They weren't used to facts being dealt with directly in front of them. And we'd taken with us the farmers of India, the practitioners, the scientists who'd worked on, on, the, on the documentation of the use of name. 
Well, one other area of patent rights or copyright or design rights is, is around software programs. Yeah. Computers are not where the companies are making their money. It's in their software programs. And so you have intellectual property rights police created in Peru and in China to go into youth hostels to check whether the students are using shared software, I call it shared software, or they're using, according to what the corporations call, pirated software. If you have not bought an original copy from Microsoft, you are a pirate. And the same logic is being applied to seed. If I have saved my seed on my own farm from my harvest last year, received from generations of innovation before me, I am a thief. But the company that steals the rice from our valley and then patents it and then comes back and collects revenues or forbids us to plant it has the intellectual property. And that's why at the end of this month, we're going to have a very long series of mobilization. We call it the, the Bijiatra, the... This, uh, the mobilization of the seed, and the theme is seed to seed, farmer to farmer. The seed should go to seed. It shouldn't be interrupted by technologies like Terminator technology. It shouldn't be interrupted by Roundup resistance. The future of the seed is to evolve and to go from seed to seed. And corporate power sees that as an interference in markets. Unfortunately, they are an interference in evolution. And the other theme of farmer to farmer is related to the fact that farmers exchange, just like student exchange, is now treated as theft and piracy, as a criminal offense under the trade-related intellectual property rights laws of WTO. Now, it's fascinating. This year, the TRIPS agreement is supposed to be reviewed. It's under review. Last year, after a decade of doing things like saying we will not accept patents on life, and like Gandhi said, we will not accept patents on salt, uh, we will not accept salt monopolies, and went and made salt on the beach, we said, we will make our own seed, we will grow our own food, and your laws, your immoral laws, and your degenerate laws are not going to be the order by which we live, and we, that beat Satyagraha has been going for a decade. Well, last year, we decided to give it a more positive slant. And we worked with 200 villages up in the Himalaya where I come from. And after six months of work around indigenous knowledge, sustainability, biodiversity, people were ready. And on 5th of June, Environment Day, we launched the Living Democracy Movement. In Hindi, we call the Jaiv Panchayat Movement. Living in three senses. First, that it is living. It's not the dead democracy we see all around us now where we elect our leaders and they do work according to someone else's instructions. Yeah. It's also a dead democracy in the sense that it's about dead fictions, like corporate power, about the trillions of dollars moving around in global markets. It's not about life. And the third reason we call it a living democracy is about, it's, that it's about the democracy of the larger family that inhabits the earth with us. Not just a particular class of humans, which is the way democracy was defined earlier, or not just humans alone, 
But the little earthworms and the butterflies and the pollinators and all our plants, the wild ones and the cultivated. And the notion of earth democracy moves very, very beautifully among people. Yeah. It's not, it doesn't have to be taught, people sense it. Uh, in India, we relate to it in terms of Vasudev Kutumkam, the earth family. So after the 200 villages, then we sent out the declaration and it moved to various areas. Six months later, we just sent an announcement out saying we were going to have a gathering of the living democracy movement. 4,000 villages had instituted their own living democracy saying the resources in this village are ours. We will use them sustainably. We will not allow their patenting and their piracy and their privatization. And we will ensure that the last person in our village benefits from the biodiversity, the water, the forest, the food that grows in this village. One of the other things we did, and I believe that's really the job of, of researchers like us who are involved in public issues or NGOs, is to make information that we have access to available to people from whom it's blocked. So we sent out lists of piracy, of all the biopiracy. We sent out uh, translations in simple form of the trade-related intellectual property rights agreement. And we basically said, now it's up to you. If, if you really think the rights are yours, you need to tell the prime minister and the secretary general of WTO that they step beyond their jurisdiction. The state in deciding that it could hand over the rights of local communities to global corporations. The WTO overstepping its jurisdiction for thinking that it had the right to decide how property rights over biodiversity and life should be written. And the most beautiful letters were written about how we invite you to come and sit under the banyan tree. We know people steal under desperation. And we will consider you kindly. <laughs> and it wasn't just fun. You won't believe it. The in government of India's recent submission in the World Trade Organization Review of Trips is that we've been receiving these letters from the community saying these resources belong to them, not to us. It doesn't belong to the state. So new things are starting to happen. New things where... The biggest powers of the world mobilized to define all life forms as their property and then collect rents from our having babies, from the cows having cows, from our plants giving birth to seeds. Amazing, right? Correcting rents from land was so primitive compared to this brilliance <laughs> of the TRIPS agreement. And Monsanto, like Cargill wrote the agreement on agriculture, Monsanto was involved directly with other companies to write the agreement on trips. They say it, it's recorded. We achieved something unimaginable. We were the patient, the physician, and the diagnostician all in one in defining intellectual property rights and getting those rights. And that really is the basic problem. That here are these fictions, two fictions, one the corporation, the other financial capital. Those fictions have been given real lives and real rights. And then there are real beings on the world, in the world. All the species, all the humans, all the struggling people. We don't exist. 
We don't exist in the new constitution enshrined around global capital and its freedoms. And it's time we corrected that error because we do have rights. And as that very, very famous case here in this country, the Mabo case made clear, that the errors of rulers in recognizing rights do not extinguish rights. And it is this new democracy that is pluralistic, in which the local leads to change the global, because it's the only way the global can change, in which all who have been on the margins unleash their creative forces to create new freedoms for all in an inclusive way. That's the kind of threshold at which we are. And we will not be criminalized. We will not be terrorized. We will not be afraid. We will just enjoy and have fun in this new freedom movement in which we all participate. Thank you. That was archival audio from the year 2000 of Dr Vandana Shiva, Indian author, activist and scientist. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Corey Green. Earlier in the show, we heard from Dr Peter Spooner from Charles Sturt University about proposed changes to New South Wales's biodiversity laws. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support and the dedicated people at the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in getting this program out to you. Earth Matters was produced in the studios at 3CR Radio in Fitzroy, Victoria, on the Kulin Nation. Our contact phone is 03-9419-8377 and our email is earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. That's all for today, but we'll be back again next week. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia, on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to www.3cr.org.au. Thank you.